0: Right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Cool fact a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage
2: for you. Learn more at uh1.com.
3: Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Arkham Files, usually your actual play Call of Cthulhu RPG podcast. But today we are bringing you another awesome edition of our Arkham Files dossiers, our interview series where we sit down and have cool conversations with interesting people from the gaming and geekdom world. Our very special guest for today hails from the swamps and pine forests of East Texas. He is a two-time Gold Annie Award winner, and is currently nominated for a third. As a game master with decades of experience under his belt, he has a successful YouTube channel where he gives out entertaining and insightful reviews, advice, and philosophy on gaming. He is also the accomplished author of the popular Valdakin and Black Raven series of stories. His latest novel, Ashes of Onyx, which especially should appeal to our fans of the mythos, has been hailed by Publishers Weekly as a wildly imaginative magical thrill ride. I am, of course, talking about author, game master, and self-proclaimed lover of nerdly things, Seth Skorkowski. Seth, thank you so much for joining us today on the show.
4: Oh, thanks for having me. That's one hell of an intro. I sound <laughs> I sound way more cool than I am. Well, uh, you're definitely
3: more cool than us, and so... Uh... Uh, so, uh, just to kick things off, we mentioned some of your projects in in the opener, obviously. But can you tell us a little bit more about what where what brought you to where you are today? How did you get introduced to the world of tabletop gaming? And can you think of any significant experiences earlier in your life that ignited your passion for it?
4: Um. Well, I I've always been a fan of you know sci-fi, fantasy, genre fiction. So uh, you know, when I was a kid, you know, I loved watching stuff like Thunder, the Barbarian. And and uh, you know, basically all the really cool 80s cartoons, uh, because there was just a lot of fantasy then. Um I found out about DD through the Satanic Panic. Uh, and when they released the the black box edition uh right before my thirteenth birthday, I had to have it because I had always heard about DD and I wanted to see what this this devil game was about. Yeah. Uh so I uh, I, I got that uh, when I was 13 shortly after I managed to find a uh, a friend whose dad had been running since the 70s so he started us with advanced Dungeons and dragons way cooler than my you know evidently basic d and uh but that was all first edition because he's like I'm not I'm not buying this brand new second edition stuff so um I I ended up getting hooking up with them real qu- quickly after I got into d d and uh, that's Kind of where it started and then I, a couple of years later i discovered cyberpunk uh 2020 because i was you know it's into my punk rock phase so i was like hey this book's got punk on it and then uh that kind of one thing led to another led to another and that's uh pretty much it
3: awesome that's cool um so uh, another thing obviously you're an author of you know uh fantasy and uh uh books um Tell us some of your your favorite authors and authors that influence or inspire you.
4: Um, you know, when I was when I was young in high school, uh, Clive Barker became one of my biggest influences. I read I read everything by Barker and uh, he, was, he was he was pretty instrumental in, in kind of crafting what my style was going to be like. Um, and then I got into Fritz Leiber's uh Fofre and Grey Mauser series because of D&D. There was like the 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 Lenkmar City of Adventure, which had that gorgeous cover on it. And I had to know what that was about. So I ended up picking that up, which then got me into Leiber, which got me into Sword and Sorcery. Um, you know, of, of course, you know, the ubiquitous seventh grade, read The Hobbit and Lord of the Rings shortly after, sort of thing. But um I really gravitated more to the sword and sorcery and then of of course, Barker esque, which he's really known for his horror, which that's actually all a short fiction. His novels are, are more like urban fantasy or portal fantasy. Which, I mean, yeah, he'll lean into the the violent and the horrific, but it's he's mostly a fantasy author that that just does some really dark stuff. Uh, a lot more like Neil Gaiman, I think, than people realize. Kind of a little, uh, kind of an R rated. Uh, Neil Gaiman, PG thirteen. Neil Gaiman is the one we call Neil. Uh, so that's that was that's was pretty pretty big influences. Um, after that, uh, William Gibson uh, was a really big one, and um, I just after that just a little bit of here and there.
3: Cool. Do you remember uh, like a specific point where you decided like, hey, I. I want to be a writer, like writing uh, fiction is something that I want to do. Was there something in, um, you know, in your childhood or whatever, where you had this aha moment where it's like, Hey, this is something I really love and something I really want to do.
4: I, I had that actually very young. Um, yeah. I remember telling my mom about the first time I wanted to write a book and I was in third grade. Uh, um, and then, you know, by, by eighth grade, I was winning creative writing contests and and whatnot. But then, then Uh, When high school rolled around, I ended up joining the debate team and getting into public speaking. And everybody said I should get into broadcasting because I got a good radio voice. So I kind of left writing and I I did that. And then I went to college and I got a radio, TV, film degree. And about the time I graduated, I realized there was absolutely no money in radio. (laughs) And it kind of quickly jumped into my like a corporate job after graduating And because I'd moved away from all my friends and and all of that, I had like all that time on my hands that I used to be hanging out with them. I decided to start writing. And that's really where it became a a serious thing. Uh, So I guess it was, you know, my early 20s is when that that became an actual uh, kind of a big part of my life again. Because in between those points, it was pretty much... You know, D&D and cyberpunk and all that that I was playing is what I was using as that creative outlet for kind of crafting stories and different things. But uh, once I had a lot more time on my hands, it suddenly became, let's let's write some stories. Cool. Very cool. Um
3: yeah so kind of transitioning uh um writing fiction and uh i'm trying not to get too much into that i'm a huge fiction nerd and so i could just probably spend the entire time asking you questions about that and then uh, huge nerd (laughs) (laughs) but getting into uh you know the the podcast and the and the gaming realm um one of the things you do on your channel is you review scenarios and adventures uh um, and you've also obviously published your own. Um, do you have any tips or advice on pitfalls you'd avoid when it comes to to writing, uh, you know, for people who want to write and publish their own scenarios? Um, when you're reviewing a scenario, what are things that stand out to you as either really, really cool or something where you're like, oh, this is, you know, this is a common mistake?
1: Ah,
4: man, we, we could go about this for a long time. Uh, the first ones that jump to my mind are uh, first... That anything that the, the characters or players are supposed to do, there is a reason that they would decide to do that. You should never have moments where you're like, and then they do this. Like, no, we have to have a, a, a motivation behind every single thing that they're supposed to do. Whether it be, you know, uh, you know, this clue leads to here, or at this point, they're expected to help the villagers, you know, wh- whatever it is. We we need to actually have motivations sewn throughout. Um, the next thing is when you're writing an adventure module for a game master, it's a lot like writing a recipe. You are giving the game master, like the instructions on how to have this adventure sort of thing, which means you need to say upfront who the bad guy is, what we're expected to do throughout this, what the twist is, like, don't, hold back where the game master has to be halfway through to get to the reveal of who the hell the bad guy is, because you're not writing this to entertain the game master. You're writing this to be to like, Hey, this is going to be a mystery and there's this many characters and all this stuff's going on. Here's the backstory. Give it to them all up front. Uh, I've, I've read a lot of scenarios where when I do need to reference something out of the backstory, something like that, it, it's, it's scattered throughout the whole thing. And it, it shouldn't be that way. It shouldn't be written like a, like a story. It needs to be written more like a recipe and uh, the game masters the chef they're cooking this for all their players you need to make this as easy to run from as possible which doesn't necessarily mean it's the most fun to just sit and read it's it's supposed to be fun to play and uh i I think that's one of the other big ones that i would tell a, a new author is don't write it out like a story
3: cool no that's that's awesome i i love that uh recipe is is a great way to put it um, I'm kind of bogarting the conversation. Donovan, do you want to jump in and, and ask a question? No, I do not. Okay. No, I'm just um, joking.
1: Yeah, I can ask a question. Um, yeah, well, on the other side of it, you give tips on a G, for GMs on how to run games effectively. What is something you've learned and how hard, uh, in the hard way not to do? Uh, do you have any examples or stories or scenarios that you could share of something you tried uh, to do in a game where you're running it and it just crashed and burned on you? Oh god, um,
4: man! I mean, I've, I've got you tons only,
1: of them. You only have what twenty five years of, you have twenty five <laughs> years of experience. I need you to will that down to one example. Okay. Okay. <laughs> um,
4: well, like I was talking about with modules, like there's the part where like, and then they do this because uh, you know no reason given, and then of course the, the 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 players they don't they don't know where they're supposed to go. They don't have any direction. They don't have any motivation for anything. And all of a sudden, I'm frantically trying to to steer them. You know, I'm basically trying to railroad them at this point because I, I haven't given them a reason to want to do the thing or even know that they should do the thing. I'm, I'm just like, well, you're going to do it because you're supposed to, right? Like I have basically I've written a story in my head and now the players are going to do it like following a script of, of what it is. And then all of a sudden I'm resisting the fact that they have free will. Um, because when, when you're writing a novel or whatnot, your characters will turn the right direction. They will decide to go to the place where the thing is because, you know, you're making them up. they will do whatever the hell you want to, for whatever reason you want to, to give them to do it. Uh, but with your players, you, you, you have to do that. I didn't. And it took me way too long to really figure that one out uh because like you know you, you learn your lesson and you're like oh okay i got this and you know a couple couple weeks couple months later all of a sudden it happens again oh oh yeah yeah i forgot you, you guys are supposed to have motivation and free will <laughs> <laughs> um so so that's that's one of my many many hard lessons
1: <laughs> <laughs> well i was actually watching a bunch of your videos on your seven deadly sins of, GM, of gms and it sounds like you have quite a bit for the players as well but uh like how do you like what i think there's four videos you have out there is that right so like it's like 20 28 deadly sins that gms just can't do like which one of those do you have to sacrifice most often when you play games or when like, you're in a like, scenario
4: like which sin do i have to like commit the most or or, uh, exactly
1: so like when yeah like with like you have these things you're asked not you like don't do this when you're playing a game do you find yourself having to go back and break those rules um never
4: never on purpose because these are things that like i've learned not to do um the ones though that i do wrestle with um is it's what i call the loot fairy i love giving out the cool item i love giving them all the cool stuff and I have screwed myself over and over and over again, because also it's like, man, it'd be really cool if I got on this, you know, plasma rifle with a 40 watt range or, or whatever it is. And also it's like, oh, crap, you know, they've got this freaking plasma rifle now and, and you know, everything's thrown out of out of whack or uh, yeah, just different different things where I, you know, I was like, I want to give it to him because it was cool. And now I'm kind of stuck with it. Um, so I, I have fallen into that one a, a a whole lot, and that is one that I usually um, find myself doing still to this that's day. A, because that's a good I, one, I, don't, I don't see it before it happens.
1: I would like to play with you if I could, because that sounds awesome. Donovan is our guy who steals all the loot, and so
3: he's he. If, if you talk about the loot fairy, he's the loot like recipient. If there's loot to be had, he will fight all the rest of us to get it.
1: This is true. Uh, it's a common mistake Alex makes as well. Our our main DM, he'll allow, allow us just to have, we'll roll a d six for how many dynamite we have, and we'll get like six on it, and that just
2: we always like, seem to roll epic. It's like the <laughs> quote the quote from Jurassic Park where you're so preoccupied with whether or not you could, you don't stop to think if you should. <laughs>
4: <laughs> yeah, you know, I I came from from first edition AD and D, and in that if you got fireballed. You actually had if you failed to save with it, you had to roll for all your stuff. Uh so like when your when your wizard went crazy and they cast their their fireball and the room wasn't big enough, it expanded out to its full volume and it hit everybody. Yeah, you know, it was basically like, okay, well, your sword melts and your left boot catches on fire, and you know, your your pants are gone and you, your your potion's boiled away, and yada yada yada. And is but kind of how I made up for that. Is because then once you get to the next room i'm gonna give you even more cool stuff so that was kind of how i used to cycle through it because players of course would be upset like oh no my you know my 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 vorpal sword melted like don't worry buddy i got another one in the next room just stop whining and open the door uh so then when that stopped like being a thing in games because i guess people didn't like losing their stuff I was still just throwing out magic items as if i was constantly removing and replenishing and removing and replenishing i was just stockpiling at this point and that's when i got in a lot of trouble <laughs>
3: <laughs> all right uh so uh shifting gears a little bit um as as we mentioned we're primarily a call of cthulhu podcast um so so uh shifting over to that um you play a lot of games obviously uh but uh I just want to ask you, what about Call of Cthulhu specifically? Do you like, and what do you enjoy about it that makes it different from other games?
4: Um, you know, I, I I enjoy the horror aspect uh, for one, but mostly I enjoy the investigation aspect. I I, I prefer running a mystery any day over a, like a hack and slash sort of dungeon crawl. I've I've been there, I've done that, I burned out on it years and years ago. Uh, you know, so having having adventures that are kind of these elaborate mysteries where the, the the players are the ones that have to kind of put together the clues and figure out what it means and whatnot is is something I love. I enjoy or I prefer games where that have a, a fragility to them. I, I don't like. The, the way that you know it's like you know d d characters get a certain level they've got a hundred and something hit points it, they're just about impossible to actually threaten you know, they're either basically all in or all out because you know if they've got one hit point they can still cast all the healings and boom, boom boom they're right back to normal I like I like characters that have like one hit will take you down and you're not healing quickly so you better you better play safe you better play smart you know you better not you know, just take flippant risks. And so I enjoy that. I love the skill-based system to it. I think it's, with some of the dishes, so clean. There's no math. It's like, okay, make a regular or hard or extreme success. Maybe we do a bonus or penalty die for whatever reason. And, but there's no like, I roll the die and I add this number, then I add this modifier and I've got to, you know, hit this target number. It's just, give me a regular success, roll it, numbers are all written on the character sheet smooth. And we can actually just focus on the game. Uh, so that's, that's the big things I, I, I love with it, but mostly I enjoy the types of story-based adventures that you have with it. Uh, it's, it's one of the reasons like, you know, I'm, I'm a loot fairy, but I also don't give a damn about like money in games. Like it is like the most boring thing in the world to me. So I remember when I first read it, I was like, oh, great. They can start off rich. I don't have to listen to them like nickel and dime me. (laughs) It's like, (laughs) "Okay, you guys are wealthy, so therefore we don't care about money anymore, right?
3: (laughs) Yeah, you don't you don't spend an hour in a in an item shop while they, you know, haggle with the, the the shopkeeper or try to steal, you know, various things.
4: Oh, I've got this, so much disposable income for day and we don't even have to keep track of it. It was like, Oh my God, it's like the best thing ever.
3: <laughs> I think the funniest thing with running a call of Cthulhu game with people who are used to D and D is that, that you mentioned the fragility of the character. Cause they're, they're so used to just going in and trying to, you know, bash your way through things, but your character is uh, your investigator dies. If you, you know, if you misstep even once, You've got 10 hit points and, you know, you get shot, it takes off 12, you're dead. Uh, so that's always a fun realization with uh, people who aren't new to gaming but are new to Call of Cthulhu.
1: Did that happen to you, Pete?
3: I don't want to talk about it, Donovan.
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, one thing that's cool to me, like the difference, um, like it's easy to play D&D kind of like you're, you'd play a video game where, you know, like you can just roll in and go into this room and you don't really worry that much about it. But, like, with Call of Cthulhu, it feels a lot more, like, closer to home, like, realistic, you know, because it takes place in, like, the real real world. And, like, when I play it, like, I, I try to imagine, like, if I were this real investigator and it's really me in the scenario, you know, what would I do?
4: No, and I, I, I think that's part of what also helps keep it grounded. Because, you know, we learned the, the fragility of characters when we played Cyberpunk. And there's always the, the first characters are not going to last long if you're taking like somebody straight over from like d d because, you know, they're going to try to like do something crazy that no sane person would actually ever try. And they're just going to kind of casually, you know, jump out of an eighth floor window or, or something like that or like, you know, jump in front of the train, whatever. And uh, then you're like, OK, cool. So that was your that was your example character now make me one that you will <laughs> not play like they're they're a superhero because you know they're not and i i i find that sort of it's a little bit more grounded you know like you're right when we're talking about the real world where you can look at a map and you say it's like okay so you know we're gonna go from here to here we might have to change the time periods up but it's not like it's not like a world where everything the characters know, they only know from what the game master has told them or being assigned, you know, to to read the Forgotten Realms or something. No, if it's going to take place in, you know, the real world, even if it's set in the 30s or the 20s or whatnot, you know, we, we spend our whole life practicing learning about the real world. Yeah, you know, we, we we have some basics understandings of a lot of stuff. And that makes it just a lot easier. And you can really focus more on, yeah, the adventure. So, yeah, yeah, love it.
1: That's hilarious because as you're talking, it's just, um, it's just bringing all these flashbacks to our scenarios. In our last scenario, Sam, Sam's character netted a literal net. He netted a car to try to capture me when I was in a daze. (laughs) And he just mangled himself.
2: Yeah, it did not work out very well for me. (laughs) As it it shouldn't.
3: (laughs) As it would. If you threw a net around a car, you could let go of the net or you could get dragged by it. Oh, Sam wasn't
1: having it. Sam was like, no, I'm going to punch you in the face.
3: Um... (laughs) So into the kind of the mechanics of, of the game, but I, I guess more the feel of the game, one of the things that's challenging with Call of Cthulhu is or at least it's particularly challenging for us and our show is kind of that dichotomy of horror and comedy, right Horror comedy is its, it's its own genre which is you know very successful in its own right. But when you're playing a game whose purpose is to is to have fun, and particularly when you're playing it with friends, it's very easy to let the humor like steal the show and run away and, and, and the horror gets left behind. How do you as as a as a GM or or a keeper of arcane lore combat that challenge?
4: I don't. We laugh our butts it. off. <laughs> uh, like you know I play with a bunch of old friends. And if if we're doing like a, a one shot or something and we are going for a bore of the darker. I usually tell them before, and like, hey, hey, we're gonna do a little bit darker, but Ultimately, you know, we're still going to start cutting up. We're still going to start laughing and, and joking. And I and I think the secret is, is how quickly you can recover from that. Yeah, you because know, you can give a joke and, you know, we, we can all laugh and then we can recover and get back to it. You know, It doesn't just devolve into zany slapsticks. It's like we play seriously, but at the same time around the table, we're, we're just joking and laughing and, and being a bunch of dorks. Um, and yeah, I, I think that's actually one of the things that a lot of people, when they're trying to look at horror games, like they'll, they'll watch live plays and all, all sorts of stuff and they don't understand because they want to treat it like they're watching television. If the, the players are serious and, you know, frightened, like, like ah, we're still dick and fart jokes the whole way, but <laughs> How we, we recover because we, we don't play loony we don't do, do any of that and as long as we're still focusing on playing uh i mean we're here to have fun man mm-hmm. so we're we, we yeah we usually cut up a lot um and that's that's just how we do it
2: hey i'm ryan reynolds at mint mobile we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does they charge you a lot
1: Cool.
3: Uh, yeah, that's 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 kind of the uh, the way we go. We try to, um, cause we our our podcast we we go back. I mentioned we go back and edit. We like to add in um, like original sound or original music and sound effects, and we try to play up that kind of audio drama as much as possible.
0: Laugh but it, tracks.
3: But th- we definitely don't use laugh <laughs> tracks. We we wouldn't need laugh tracks for crying yeah. out loud. We have to cut the out the laughing, and, and, and most of the time that's we just. We are who we are and it's going to be a joke. And that's, that's kind of just how we roll.
4: Well, and yeah, you know, like, so like, yeah, 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 I've done several episodes like that, how we roll podcast, they edit it down. They usually cut out all the joking, which is like, man, that's the best part. Like, like I don't remember what else we did. Yeah. But I can remember all the jokes. <laughs> um, but then when I've done stuff with, with glass cannon and we did call it Cthulhu the first time we did something with them and a lot of people like, were like upset. That we joked like they were mad and i i remember one guy lecturing me of like as yes, you you know as a as a i forget was that good ambassador to call of cthulhu you should have shown them how the proper way of playing like <laughs> what are you talking about we were having fun we had a great time and we did a very complicated scenario in five hours we locked down pretty tight we would joking and we stayed on on target the whole time so but who cares that we left that's actually what real games are like uh, so
3: well, and I think that points to something that you kind of dwell on in in your videos that I really, really like uh, is essentially when it comes down to it, the purpose of the game is to have fun. Like if you you start the game by saying, hey, I am going to have fun with this, regardless of what happens. And, and when it comes down to it, did your players have fun? Then it was a successful game.
4: Exactly. And the, the other aspect to it is, yes, absolutely have fun. But uh did we get something accomplished? Because I've actually watched a lot of, you know, uh, people who will get their group, and they get together and they mostly just have beers and they tell stories and they laugh and they never get anything done in the game. And then they get frustrated because they look back and they actually didn't do anything at the game, but the group ends up falling apart because there still is the aspect of we came together for a purpose. We're going to have this game. We're going to play this game and we're going to have an absolute hoot doing it. Uh, so as a game master, sometimes I kind of have to be the, 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 the horrible draconian just jerk that has to be all like, like, in a clap and like, okay, guys, focus up back to the game, back to the game, because we will wander off telling stories and, and jokes and, 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 whatnot. And it's just, it still has that focus up, focus up. Uh, and then we get back to the game and we'll, we'll laugh and we'll joke. And then, you know, they, we have to stay focused on getting the game done because we're there have fun. And we are. there to laugh but we're also there for a purpose and i think a lot of people miss that um other aspect to it because i could just hang out with my friends doing anything so to have a successful game we still needed to get something done with the game we still had to play something and like you know do something but yeah if 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 it's not fun then we shouldn't be doing it uh which yes, we can get we can get frustrated at our dice. We can have all sorts of, you know, the whole range of emotions. But if the overall is not fun, then do something else. <laughs> like, that's that's why we're here.
3: Yeah. Uh, you, you've you mentioned uh, before, you know, you've been playing, you've been GMing for, you know, almost 30 years at this point. Uh, you, um, you know, it sounds like you're kind of the primary GM for whatever games you played. You get to be a... A regular player very often, or are you mostly the default GM?
4: With my group, I'm almost always the GM. Um, I, uh, I've i got one player who has been kind of giving us a very off and on uh, Cyberpunk Red game for the past, uh, I guess, about a year now, but it's mostly off and on. And I have another player who has been promising me. He is going to run this campaign and it's going to be awesome. And he's been promising me for, I guess we're at 20 years now. And one day I swear it's going to happen. Uh, and uh, yeah, that's about it. Um, and I've ended up being in a lot of other groups with online play, you know, so I've got several that I'm a player and just, just as a player, but with, you know, with, with my group and my friends, it's, Ninety nine percent may.
1: Well, what do you prefer, player or GM? Mm, The ultimate question. The ultimate. I'm so broken
4: at this point. I have to GM.
1: (laughs) It's just too part of who you are. It's just too natural now.
4: Yeah, I mean, like it's sometimes being a player is just weird as hell. Um, I mean, I I need to. I have. I I still have the need to be a player. Sometime. But if i had to be one or the other and that, that that's it that's it forever um i would be gm
2: as a being a gm you know probably most of the time <clears throat> is it hard to like switch to being a player and not like play the game as like you're the gm you know what i mean where you're thinking of things as as a gm would rather than like how a player would
4: um <laughs> Yeah, I, which I also see, like being a being an author, it's real difficult to just read a book anymore without, yeah, uh, thinking about you know how they did a certain sentence structure, like oh that's really good, or like oh wow I can't believe an editor didn't do a pass on this, or like oh that was a really clever twist, like so yeah you know, so you're you're still kind of duck shot the whole time even while you're pleasure reading, and it's the same thing as a player, uh, which you can. Not always turn that off, but you can turn it down to an ignorable level sometimes. But it is it is always there, just in the in the back of uh, of how it is, because it's also handy because you see stuff that you could like, oh wow, I like that, or uh, like is that, that's a cool trick or or whatnot that you can you can steal ideas from, and then of course you know, after it's over, if uh, if you are talking to a and yeah, G, if that's kind of asking for your advice afterwards, you can give a, a proper critique of like, hey, this is what I liked. This is, you know, you had trouble here. This is what I'd recommend you do next time. That sort of thing. But, but yeah, that that voice is always there. It's just it, it, the the volume is all you can really control. But it's always talking.
1: Yeah.
2: So one of the things you talk about on your channel is the uh, the RPG social uh, contract. Which you know essentially talks about like what you should do as a player, but on the flip side, as a seasoned GM, like is there anything that a player could do that will guarantee that they're not invited back to one of your games?
1: Uh, I've done all of them for sure.
2: <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I mean,
4: there's there, there's there's quite a quite a bit, but um, you know, actually losing their temper is, is, is one. Uh, if if the if they are very if they're very into the mindset, this game is about me, and that that they're they're not really, I don't know, aware of the other people in the room, or they think that those people are there just to watch them. That that just becomes exhausting, and they're not usually going to last very long, uh, because I, I'm a big believer that it is a group effort, and everybody there needs to be supporting everyone else and, and taking everyone else into account. Uh, that way, everybody gets to have a good time. Yeah, when you have a player who just refuses to uh, basically allow anyone else to have a good time—that it's all about them—they are not going to last um, at my table. Uh, as as will be if if a player comes in with the idea that this is somehow a competition—that I have to beat the game master or the game master is here to beat me—and you know they come in with a very antagonistic. Um, opinion uh, where the the GM is the enemy and they have to treat the GM like they're the enemy. And when I've talked about that on various videos, yeah, I will inevitably get some people that come on and say, well, the reason they're that way is because they were taught that by a bad game master and it's not their fault. Say, dude, I have taken brand new rookie players off the street who had that mentality. I mean, what, what are you talking about? Just some people walk in with that mentality and you can, Often teach them that that's, that that's not how it is. It's not antagonistic. I am here to challenge you, but I am not here to defeat you or to you know make you miserable. But I, I'm going to give you a challenge because I want you to win. But I'm going to challenge you so that victory has meaning. And we're going to laugh and we're going to tell jokes the whole time we're doing it. Uh, so I, I think players that still come in with that mentality or refuse to basically be a group. Instead of just a bunch of individuals, are the ones that aren't going to last that long, because those are that's where you come across the people steamroll over other people, or oh, you know all the a lot, so many of the misbehaviors, um, so many things just come down to the person you know, either on either side of the screen, that thought it was all about them, and many of the problems we talk about really come down to that. That and communication; those are basically the two. <laughs> The two biggest things that 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 cause problems is communication or people that think it's about them.
2: So when you run a, a game with new players that you haven't played with before, is it pretty easy to kind of like pick up on what players are going to be like that as the game starts going?
4: Um as it starts going. I, I have realized that it's actually very difficult to judge any of that before you play with them. I have watched people that I thought would be like the greatest role players like the moment that game starts like a flip of a switch and it's like yeah like you spin the wheel It's like what type of player are you gonna be i would i can't guess anymore uh just because i've been so terribly wrong so many times with like well that didn't work out or oh they surprised me so uh, after a bit you could usually do it and yeah try to try to steer them with you know like hey you know just just heads up why don't we? You know, why don't we try these approaches or sort of thing? That way, everybody can can enjoy it. Because I do know there is a lot of coaching. It's not like it's not like anybody's bored knowing all this stuff. I certainly didn't. And, uh, but it also depends on how receptive they are to it.
3: So uh, one of the things. This is kind of a, a, a shift of subject back over to your um, your books. Um, but one of the things that uh, I I uh, particularly I guess spoke to me um was uh your blog on your on your uh on your website about the book in the drawer right um as somebody who is the you know proud owner also of a book in a drawer i wondered if you could share that that story from your uh from your blog with with us and with our listeners
4: well you know i said i graduated college I, i decided to start writing and I was going to write a big, epic fantasy novel because, damn it, that's what you do. And, of course, it has to be serious because, damn it, that's what you do. <laughs> and, right. uh, like any any new author that decides to do this, and I'm going to base a lot of it off of our D&D game because, damn it, that's what you're not supposed to do. <laughs> but a lot of people try. Um, and so I ended up joining you know an online writing workshop and you know, a lot of stuff. And it took me about two years to write this, this novel. And over the course of that time, I learned how to write because I I didn't know. And then I started on the sequel. And I got a good way into that while I was trying to pitch the first novel, which pitching is when you have to basically write a one-page letter where you summarize the whole book in 3 to 5 sentences because you're trying to get an agent or an editor to say, "Oh, send me send me this. I'll read it and you know maybe I'll represent it or maybe I'll publish it." And that had gone nowhere. Like just just horribly frustrating. And eventually I got guilted by a friend of mine into going to this uh, writing workshop at a, uh, at, a, at a convention because she was involved with the, the convention and she wanted me to do it. And I basically got pinned and I, I had to go. But just I was shamed into it. So I, I did this writing workshop, which is three days where you're in. Basically, there's 20 people in a room with an editor. Within everybody shares the first 10 pages of their story. So for the month before, you read the first 10 pages of the 19 other stories. And then you spend three days going through it very meticulously with this editor of him telling you what works, what doesn't, and suggestions. So it was with a gentleman named Lou Anders who had just won the Hugo Award for best editor like the month before. And so that's like as hot editor as you can get in the entire, you know, speculative fiction market. Yeah. Like the guy just got his Hugo. And after three days with, uh, with Lou in this room, he basically said like this book is, is unpublishable. It's terrible, but you learned how to write. And that is the important thing because if you hadn't done this, you wouldn't know how to write. So now that you've got this out of your system and you know what to do, go write me a good book. And that sounds like that would be the most crushing horrible thing in the world. My wife was terrified when I told her that. Uh but I felt so relieved because I knew that on on some fundamental level, but I was so attached to this these books that I'd spent, you know, three so more years putting together and writing and honing that I I I knew it was bad, but I didn't want to admit it. And I had some ideas for another book that I wanted to do. Once once that was done, this this huge 19 volume epic fantasy, once it's done, I've got this other idea I want to do. And it's like this modern day monster hunters and this, you know, uh this 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 magic revolver and kind of redefining how how demonic possession and, and werewolves and vampires all work. And so I I got back from this content fired up. Like, I'm gonna do it. And I, I said, I'm going to put these ideas together and I'm going to start that other novel I was talking about. So um, next week I started writing Dameron and the the first chapter, you know, the original form was exactly 10 pages. And I hit every single point that, that Lou spent three days hammering into our heads of how to start a novel off. And that ended up being the first book that I, I managed to, to pitch and sell. And that then led to some more books and some short stories. But it required that I wrote one and most of a second book just to learn how to write. And they're terrible and no one will ever see them.
3: (laughs) That's that's awesome. Uh, To your point, like you write a, you know, a hundred thousand, 120,000 page book. It's especially your first one. Like it's, it's your baby. It's really hard to be able to accept even constructive criticism about, about it. And so being able to, like you said, take, uh, you know, take the good from it and then and then use that to, you know, springboard yourself into your 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 first publication is is really cool and, and really inspiring. And uh, for me personally, um, so appreciate you uh, you sharing that
1: with us. Well, um, what would be a book for those who haven't read your books, Sam, not me, but Sam, um, which one would you recommend Dameron, Ashes of Onyx or Mountain of Daggers to start off with uh, Seth, uh, Seth Scorsese? Scorsese. <laughs> I don't know how often you this, get that, dude. We had this conversation we before. We had this conversation before.
3: <laughs> it's like, I can't say Skorkowski. I keep saying Skorskazy. And I'm like, that's not a bad... That's not a...
4: <laughs> I, I'm a mispronounced king uh, uh, myself. And I've also lived my whole life with people butchering my name that I don't even notice <laughs> anymore. So, yeah, you're fine. Um, well, it, it kind of depends on what you like. Uh, so, if, if you like sword and sorcery short fiction... Uh, that's basically full of tropes. That's what Mountain of Daggers is. It is like a checklist of of all the sword and sorcery tropes about a thief and these these short little adventures that are kind of loosely in a linear story. But they're it's, it's done like as an ode to Fawford and Gray Mauser and Fritz Leiber and all of those. Um which a lot of people now they prefer novels over short fiction which is which is cool. But that's what the that's what Mountain of Daggers and its sequel are. Um the Valdican series is uh, demon hunting, modern day action horror stories with a lot of, you know, explosions and 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 gore and fighting and that sort of thing. In um, each novel in that series, I actually try to do a different theme behind it uh, because if I kept writing the same story over and over again, I would I, I would it would kill me. So I tried to make. Yeah, I tried to change the entire theme of each one to keep them unique and fresh and more fun to write and read. Um, that's actually my most popular is Dameron. That that is uh, my most popular by far. Ashes of Onyx is the one I wrote for me, and that is a a what you would call a new weird. It's more like it. It is very hard to pin into a genre, which was a nightmare for selling it because. I would have editors say, I have no idea what, you know, what part like, where to classify this book when we're trying to do our classifications in order to sell it. Um, that is the one where we, we do go into Carcosa, but it is, uh, it, it's a lot more in the line of like uh, a Clive Barker portal fantasy where it does start off and is almost urban fantasy and then just goes nuts. And, you know, we, we start jumping into other worlds and, it will lean into horror it will lean into this genre and that one uh, as we just kind of do our story and we're not trying to uh, follow the the genre rules so that's that's ashes but ashes is also very difficult for a lot of people who say I want to read an urban fantasy it's like well it's not it is for the first 100 pages and then it's definitely not after that uh so it's 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 kind of its own thing because i was like I said I wrote that one for me and that's how stuff like a Magica and a uh, Great and Secret Show and a lot of the old Barker books would do where we would start off grounded and then we would enter another another realm and it was fantastical and terrible at the same time and that was you know what what what, what I what I loved so that's what I did
3: mm-hmm.
4: so well, then, whichever one of those appeals to you
3: um so this is an unfair question and might be a little bit asking like what's your which child is your favorite? But of all the ones that you've published, do you have a favorite that that is is you know you're the most that you enjoy the most or that you enjoyed the most? I
4: yes. guess. And us, yeah, that's the second in the Valdigan series. That one. Uh, uh, sorry, go ahead. No, it's just yeah, you know, Cameron. I'm always going to love because it was the first and you know works and all. I mean like. Yeah, I, I have trouble going through it now because I have so many spots like oh, I would do this different or I do that different sort of thing. Um, Hanassi is what I consider to be like just just my favorite. I, I, I love that book. Um, Ashes I consider to be technic like the under the technical aspect of writing, my best. But Hanassi is my favorite.
3: Awesome. Uh, that one uh, is probably my favorite also, actually. Uh, it was kind of cool because I picked it up after Dameron and I didn't read like the back of it or anything. I just picked it. I really like Dameron. So I'm like, I'm going to read the second one. And so I was, you know, I was expecting a- another story with Matt and then you uh, um, you, you, you don't, you get a different story altogether. And just uh, comparing the two, I-, I-, I really enjoyed it a lot. So I um, really liked that one.
4: At the time I wrote it, I referred to it as pulling a Lestat. Um, yeah, if you if you read Interview with the vampire, you know, there's, there's you're following Louis and you love Louis, and then there's Lestat, and Lestat's a dick, and you hate Lestat. <laughs> and then the second book's called The Vampire Lestat. And you're like, what I want to read a book about that dick, and then you read it, and by the time it's done, you're like, Man, Lestat's the coolest ever. I love him. And Louis, Louis is so whiny. God, I can't stand him. <laughs> and and then everybody loves Lestat, even though in the first book, he was a total dick and you hated his guts. So I kind of considered book two uh, pulling a listot because Malcolm in the first book, what, part one of his, his roles was he was uh, a conflict character. He, he caused uh, problems for the hero. Yeah, he wasn't a bad guy. He was a good guy, but he just, you know, he and the hero didn't get along and he ended up in kind of that uh, antagonistic sort of role. So, the second book, we follow him. And I, I guess if a lot of people, if they're not expecting it, they're like, why do I want to be in the point of view of this jerk? And you realize that his point of view is actually very different. And uh, I ended up loving that book because the first book we've got Save the world. And the second book is a very personal story and a very personal horror. And if he dies, you know, the, the, he fails, then then that's it, that it's not going to destroy the world. It's just, him and the people he love and the rest of the world won't even notice so I, I i really loved that story
3: cool awesome yeah i think that's a great uh characterization of it too that little stop thing because <laughs> say uh, yeah you, you walked me through kind of my own thoughts through it like you said like malcolm in the first book he, he's confident you know he's he's combative you don't really love him because you're rooting for matt and you're like malcolm's kind of a douche and, and then you start with the
1: book
3: <laughs> and you really grow to like the characters you go so um yeah i uh um uh, i thought it was great um so jumping kind of dwelling on you know the Valdican uh, series and with dameron uh what was um if you can point to you know one or a couple of things what was your inspiration when when you know that that kind of idea was born what were your inspirations for 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 it
4: There were two. There were actually supposed to be two totally different things. Um, uh, The the first was I had the concept that that stuff like the monsters out of folklore, you know, werewolves, vampires, all that. Instead of it being a virus or or all the stuff that that we we like to use now at at popular media because we understand viruses and germs and whatnot, and they treat it that way. If it was uh, an entity and that it was a possession and when you, when you shoot a werewolf with a silver bullet, you don't actually kill the werewolf. This spirit then just moves to its new host. And all you did was you killed the host, which is really a victim, but it was the, you know, that, that, that's all you did. You made it somebody else's problem. You killed the werewolf. Yay. Now it's taking over someone else far away and they have to deal with it, but that entity still goes or a vampire or whatever. And then kind of the idea of what it would take to actually kill that, uh, the actual spirit. The other was I had the idea for a uh, uh, this basically magic gun that had, uh, you know, you, you had to mold, you had to mold all the bullets because they're of a special caliber, and you had to make them out of silver. And on the bullet it had like uh, an amen. And on the inside of the barrel was a, was a prayer that would go. And basically when the, the bullet traveled down the barrel, once it went down that was actually would bless this bullet and that was a separate idea that i had because i was trying to come up with how you make a magic gun for dnd because yeah like because the gun doesn't hit them the bullets do so like how do you transfer that magic to the the bullet itself if you're going to make like a magic gun uh and, and basically and, you know and then when you put it and together. It's like, well, it's very clear that those two to go together. No, they're two totally different things I was thinking about. And finally, one day I put them together like, oh, wow, those fit great. And then from there, the whole concept of the, the special weapons. And I gave each weapon a very unique properties and whatnot. And I was actually about to start before I discovered there was a French gunsmith by the name of Dumontier who used to make what are called cutlass revolvers which were these these old-style percussion cap. Actually, they were, um, they were percussion cap. I forget the name of it. One of the earlier types that um, had a blade on the bottom, like a sword blade that was just slung under the barrel. And a lot of people thought I got that from anime. It's like, no, was, it's a real gunsmith, real French guy. You can, you can buy Demonties. Uh And uh, I went ahead and said, oh, okay, then it was a, a sword And that was forged into the gun, which I always knew. But now I kept part of the blade and I had this French gunsmith from actual history in the the 1900s craft this special weapon. And uh, so that's a lot of ideas just kind of fell together. There wasn't really a, I guess, a plan when I started of like, I'm going to do this and this and this. It kind of just evolved and morphed. And I took a lot of different things and shoved them together and dameron was originally i think there were three scenes and the first two chapters were two of those like scenes and then i had one later on and it takes place in the middle of the book no one will ever notice but those were the three scenes that dameron came from is chapter one chapter two and a scene in a fight and they're in a quarry and i then had to figure out how all those things went together and that's kind of the writing process
3: cool that's awesome um uh, i i said i wouldn't get super into the I, I try to keep this more balanced but i i've just ended up asking you a bunch of writing questions and i have got one more uh um you know many uh, aspiring writers myself included look to your success in the in the literary world what what advice would you give to those people who aspire to um, not just write novels but create compelling rpg scenarios as well uh that, like you've done
4: well, with with writing novels, because I, I consider like scenario writing and novel writing two very different skills, very different. Uh, so if you're, if you're writing fiction, join a writing workshop. It doesn't matter if it's an in-person one. You could do an online one. There are tons of different types, tons of different formats, and tons for every single skill level. Uh, and that is how I learned to write. And the big thing that taught me how was by doing critiques. Because most of them, in order to get critiques, you have to learn to give critiques. And very often, you are not always the best at taking criticism. You know, that's just you know, that's just a thing. And, you know, a lot of times people would criticize myself, like, God, what do they know? They're fools. And I'm a genius. And then I would be critiquing other people. And I would find myself saying the same thing that other people had said about my work of like... Uh, you know, there's like a lot of repetition in the sentences or that the styling is, is this way. And then a lot of the craft, and that's when it it actually took for me to realize that I did those things too. I was just kind of too stubborn to, to see it. Um, so join a writing workshop, get some feedback, not from your friend, not from your mom, get it from actual other writers who have rewired their brain to be able to read critically because that is the only way you're going to improve. If you, if you give your manuscript to your buddy, they're going to love it because they love you. And you're not really going to get good feedback from that. Give it to a stranger who is there to help you and actually knows how to write. And they will give you an honest critique. And the idea is because they're expecting you to, to give honest critiques back. And I have a lot of friendships that are completely forged by, by writers who we can be brutally honest with each other. Yeah, we could tear each other's stuff up and then we can laugh and joke and have a drink. And, but that's the, the formation of our friendship is over that sort of uh, brutality of honestly, because we're trying to help each other. With a scenario, uh, if you're writing one for publication, one of the big things is play test it. And don't just play test it with your buddies that you wrote it for, play test it with a group of strangers. But the real test is to then give that to another game master. And do not tell them like how to do it and see if a game master can pick up your adventure, read it and, and get it down and then get feedback from them. What worked? What didn't? What do they suggest? Because a lot of the times what you know, you'll have people do is they'll give it to somebody to play test it, but then they talk them through the whole thing. And it's like, if you're going to sell this, that person that buys this doesn't have the author right there to tell them all the information that you you failed to write clearly in there. You know, they need to be able to read that text and they need to be able to run the adventure. And if they have difficulty with the adventure, that's where, you know, the problem is. And a lot of times when you're trying to do that, that people accidentally skim over because they told the, the GM who's going to test it out for them too much. And the GM had like an unfair advantage to give a true, honest assessment if it could, you know, does the recipe work? Right. So that's my yeah. tip.
3: Cool. Yeah, if you're gonna if you're gonna hand your, your recipe over to another chef, you can't walk them through, you know you're, you're handing them the pages, the ingredients. you can't you can't tell them how to make it. otherwise they they're not following the recipe anymore.
4: Yeah, don't yeah, like, uh, say, like, oh well, you should you should you should whip it this way instead of that way. like well if that's important, you need to write that down in there.
2: Don't give me a verbal tip. <laughs> it needs to be in the recipe. You Bob Rossum. And you're like, now let's add a pretty little tree over here. <laughs>
4: yeah. <laughs> it's like, you know, just don't, don't, don't give them a bunch of friendly advice on how to run it better. That isn't in there because your customer doesn't get that. They don't have you on speed dial.
1: <laughs> well, that's really good advice. Yeah.
3: I, I uh, you probably don't want to sell something like that. Uh, don't Bob you're like, here's my cell phone number in the back. If you have any questions.
4: According to legend, Gary Gygax would actually get regular phone calls from fans over that type of stuff, like, like you know, Mister Mister Gygax, I, I, we have a question about the Beholder, and you know, he's just answering it on the phone. <laughs> it was the '70s, and time was weird, so
3: that shows uh, i mean that's how you know somebody loves their craft
1: right
4: <laughs> uh, i don't i don't lo- i don't love my craft that much man i'm not <laughs> giving them my phone number to ask me questions
1: <laughs> um well you do a lot of skits on your show out of all the characters you do which one's your favorite to play jack jack
4: yeah, yeah. um uh, jack the Npc and his many 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 stupid costumes uh, my, i i enjoyed doing that um, after that, uh, I enjoy Todd. I enjoy Dweebles the least. Like the least, I hate doing Dweebles because I hate name. doing my hair that way.
1: <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. I saw you played a woman in one of your skits. How do you how do you enter that headspace to play a woman?
4: Uh, well, I I, I I steal some uh, some bra from my wife and then I load it with socks. Yeah, uh, that's, that's about it. Well, because when I when I play a woman in those, I, it's it's Jack in the role of a woman, and Jack's voice is always consistent. So it, it doesn't matter if it if he's a bad or a woman or of you know we're doing an ancient you know Chinese Wuxia game or we're doing far future sci fi and he's got a wolf head, his voice is always the same. It is always clearly Jack the whole time whether whether he is you know in a dress or not so eh, not, no real difference in the headspace because the headspace is just jack. jack jack is delivering this he just might happen to be dressed like a woman because that's just the role he ended up in jack <laughs>
3: there you go your voices are always uh uh super um, Super good, super on point, super hilarious. Uh, how much of that is trial and error and just practice? And is there any of that that's like kind of your background? You mentioned like you, uh, you know, you got your degree in broadcasting and, and radio and those types of things. How much did you pick up from that and how much of it is just, you know, trial and error and, and having fun with it?
4: Oh, it's almost all trial and error, um, you know, because, you know, when I was doing my, my degree, there were still more focused on the technical aspect. Well, at the time, man, I learned how to do audio on reel to reel tapes. It was outdated at the time. They were charging me out the butt to learn how to do reel to reel tapes. Uh, so n- none of the stuff that I really learned actually translates. I had to do linear editing where you, you actually had to edit in order of how it's going to play and you know i on my computer i can do non-linear editing and then insert little scenes clips here and there and that sort of deal uh so it's nothing really translated over everything else has just been trial and error and a lot of times i have to do like i don't know like five six takes of just about any line and then figure out which is the one that i said the inflection the best while also not muddling my lines because you know a lot of the times i uh, the inflection was ba- that everything was perfect. The face, everything was great. But then I flubbed the line. OK, well, I'll go with my sixth choice because that's the only one I got the line all the way out. <laughs> um, so it, it's just kind of figuring it out uh, that way. And just uh, I think the black and white filters and the kind of the cartoony nature of their voice really do kind of trick people into thinking I am better than I am when it comes to uh, my acting ability. Uh, because if you, you, you throw on a fake mustache, a black and white filter and like a draw, people somehow forget that it's literally you. <laughs> somehow.
1: it's Acting's hard. And When I first DM'd my, when I think my second game where I was actually doing NPCs, I couldn't keep my accent straight. I was gave everybody the same accent or a different accent every single time. I just gave up halfway through and just, did my regular voice because it's just the worst trying to do uh, a character voice the entire time
4: I, unless it's over the top i can't do it either like accents oh man they all end up becoming some sort of irish australian something <laughs> something um so uh or they're very cartoony you know it's like my french voice sounds like I'm trying to be Peppy Le Pew. It's like, no, that's like, that's just what it sounds like yeah. in order to make me consistently remember it. You know, if, if I want to do like a, like a German accent, I sound like Sergeant Schultz from Hogan's Heroes. I mean, that's like, that's it. That's the extent of my acting range is, is these cartoony extremes in order to keep it straight. Otherwise, if I try to do subtle, it just kind of blends into this one accent that isn't anything. It's just kind of a blending of it all into some incomprehensible thing. Um, so like I've also only got a couple NPC voices that I actually can consistently do. Um, and then I, I might come in up with an over-the-top one that then becomes resigned to this one NPC till the end of time. Mm-hmm. So which means all bartenders in my world sound pretty much the exact same. Yeah, I just <laughs> Yeah, just all of them. Every D and D, every Call of Cthulhu bartender, all of them in the far future. They all pretty much sound the same. It's like the the patented Seth bartender voice, which my players know would love because they make fun of me for it. <laughs> <So>. <laughs>
1: That's awesome. It's part of their job as the yeah, players. That makes so much sense. My most outrageous character, Reginald America, is just over over the top, super American, and it's. The only one i can do consistently
4: yeah and and, 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 yeah a lot of the times it's like the only way you can remember it is to be just so stupid with it (laughs) that that, yeah that's once again people are like do you have a serious game like you know i would have except for the fact that the only like everybody has the same voice except for this one dude that's based off macho man randy savage
1: (laughs) (laughs) you know but
4: yeah yeah totally serious yeah (laughs) (laughs)
1: i was a paladin dragon and my name was drandy savage
4: that's
3: pretty much all of them that's it all right um well i think we've taken up a full hour of your time uh really appreciate it seth i really enjoyed the conversation love having you on um before we let you go is there anything um you're working on right now anything new you want us to to highlight
4: um you know the time being uh, no I've, I've got a few things in the pipe but i'm not allowed to talk about them until publishers make announcements so you know i i do have a few things but you know you can find my my, my books and all that on amazon um audible because i'm an audiobook addict I, I insisted that every book that i do is an audio edition and then uh dameron hanasier or um finalists for best supernatural audiobooks the years they came out because i got rc brace somehow and he is fantastic he is yeah um then there's a modern mythos podcast i do with sean hook where it's mostly just two old keepers just bsing for an hour and that's pretty much the format uh, <laughs> not, not 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 nothing nothing uh nothing horribly detailed except for just just two old Gibbs just kind of shooting the crap for like one or two hours, because we can't even remember how long we're supposed to go. Uh, then, of course, my channel, Seth Skorkowski, which is not a catchy name, but it was originally meant to promote my writing, so I didn't want to have a cool gamer name to it, because I wanted my name attached to it. My very long, unpronounceable, difficult-to-spell name, uh, oh. which clearly a brilliant move on my part. <laughs> but once you know how to spell my name, you can find all my stuff. <laughs>
1: Which, by the way, I wish I would have found your channel when I was DMing and learning all this stuff because it would have made my life so much easier because I think I looked through all your seven deadly sin videos and I made every single one of them.
4: I've made oh all of them, gosh. too. All right, that's, that's part of the shtick is I, am, I have made all of these. Sometimes, sometimes many, 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 many times <laughs> have I committed that same sin because... uh I'm I'm not necessarily the smartest guy to realize why things aren't working. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, you're in, you're in a good you're in good company. But yeah, I'd recommend that to any of our listeners. Go watch his channel because if you want to DM, if you want to get into this stuff, he has very helpful tips and things to to go off of. So I highly recommend that.
3: All right. Um, yes. Uh, all of us, I think, feel the same way. Seth, thanks again for joining us. We've loved having you on.
2: Thank you for having me. Thank you so much.
3: Thank you for listening to this episode of the Arkham Files Dossier Series. We want to thank our special guest, Seth Skorkowski, for joining us once again. That was a ton of fun. And encourage all of you to subscribe to Seth's YouTube channel and buy his books. You will not regret it. Keep an ear out for more interviews with us in the future, but also for the return of our regular case file. Our current case is The Radio Man. If you haven't checked that out yet, you are missing out. It is a great blend of supernatural, mythos, creepiness, and good old-fashioned murder investigation. So check that out. Check out our website, www.arkamrpg.com. And until next time, stay sane.